Welcome to Hypergrowth Investing. Uh, my name is Aaron Davis, and I am the host of the Investor Place Launchpad, a show over on our sister channel over at Investor Place, where we try to give people the quick and dirty on trending investment ideas. Um, but there's only so much we can go over in a week and over at the Launchpad. And to be fair, I'm a little more of an educator than an investor, which is why I have teamed up with the incredibly smart, innovative investor, and let's face it, all-around great guy, Luke Lango. Luke, how you doing? Hey, Aaron. Great to be here, man. How you doing? I'm good, man. I, you know, and I am, I am so happy and excited to start this journey with you. I am too. I believe it's going to be a lot of fun and uh, hopefully very profitable as well. <laughs> so, so Luke, again, my background is, is in education and media, but with that, I do consider myself a lifelong learner. And again, mm -hmm. I'm incredibly excited to learn more about the things going on in the investment world on a week to week basis and really get a better grasp and understanding about what it means to be an investor in today's society and learn from someone, again, who has such a firm grasp on the investment world. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate the kind words, but yeah, I mean, investing is a very worthwhile pursuit, a very profitable pursuit if you do it correctly. And I believe there's never been a better time to invest um, in the stock market than, than right now and the crypto markets. I think that there's a lot of money to be made uh, if time is on your side over the next five to 10 years. So uh, yeah, buckle up. It'll be a great ride. Cool. Well, again, before we get started, and since this is our premiere episode of Hypergrowth Investing, for the viewers who don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about your background? And again, to be a little corny, how you became a number one investment analyst in 2020, according to TipRanks. Okay, yeah, great. Um, so, uh, name's Luke Blango. Um, I got my start investing in college. I uh, went to a tech school in Pasadena called Caltech. Um, while I was there, I developed an obsession. Very, very good school. Very good school from what I hear. That uh, small, yeah, small it's, school. it's a pretty good school for the uh, four years that I was there. It was ranked the number one uh, university in the world, according to Times Higher Education, uh, for three or four straight years. So, yeah, that, that's pretty good school. Uh, difficult school. Uh, school obsessed with numbers and mathematics and science. Uh, my angle was mathematics. I became obsessed uh, around sophomore year of applying uh, my love for mathematics to the stock market. I'd always had this obsession with uh, the, the high frequency, high volatility moves of, of financial markets. And so I became obsessed with trying to predict them using mathematics. And um, I had some early success investing out of my dorm room um, in college. I uh, linked up with some some big hedge fund managers at the time uh, who also taught me the ropes uh, to investing. I applied or combined what they taught me with my quantitative models to come up with my own sort of unique approach to picking long-term winning stocks. Uh, the better I got at it, the more people heard about me. Um, and I eventually linked up with the uh, former general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Fred Clare, did some investing for and with him, had great success there. He looped me into the venture capital world because he started a sports analytics business. Um, and then I basically worked in venture capital for, for several years. Uh, and that's really where we became obsessed with technology and early stage technology. I got to see firsthand how things go from drawing board concept to disruptive reality and create tremendous economic value for shareholders along the way. So I became really obsessed with early stage technology at that stage in my life. Uh, and then I was like, well, why can't I do this applied to the stock market? Why can't I do VC investing type stuff applied to the stock market so that not just super rich clientele have access to these opportunities, but that everyday people can have access to these opportunities. So that's where I transitioned my career thereafter. Um, 
And in that pursuit is, yeah, I became pretty good at identifying uh, early stage tech stocks. And when early stage tech stocks took off in 2020, um, I had a lot of stocks that went up five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 X or more. And that's how I became uh, the supposed world's number one stock picker uh, in 2020, according to tip right. So uh, ever since then, I've stuck with it, kept doing what I've been doing, um, have good success. And, uh, I'm really excited for what comes next because I think the next decade is going to be probably the most technologically disruptive decade uh, that humans as a species has ever witnessed. So really, really exciting stuff to come. And a lot of money to be made with with. with that, uh, right? yes, indeed. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I definitely have a, a few topics that we, we want to touch base this week on. Um, again, first up and again, we're entering a new year. And I know that the, the market's kind of crazy right now. And part of that is because of the Fed policy tightening. And, you know, the, you, you hear some of these tech stocks are crashing. So, you know, can you give us a little bit of insight? You know, why is this happening and what happens next? Yeah, so um, you kind of have to frame the context with uh, how stocks are valued. So the theoretical financial one, the theoretical value of a stock or a company is equal to the net present value of all of its future cash flows, plus whatever its balance sheet says it's worth today. So it's assets minus its liabilities, basically. Um, now, the way you calculate that net present value of future cash flows is you got to project a company's cash flows out X amount of years and discount that back by a certain discount rate. That discount rate is influenced by things such as the federal funds, the effective federal funds rate, which is the rate that the central bank, the U.S. Federal Reserve, uh, determines is the overnight lending rate between banks. And that is the most important rate in, in the U.S. economy. Now, for ever since 2008, really, that rate has been near zero. Now, they started to hike it a little bit in 2016, 2017, 2018, but then they started cutting it. Uh, in 2018 and 2019, 2020, and then they cut it to zero during the pandemic. So it's basically been near zero for upwards of 12 years, 13 years. During that time, uh, the stock market has become very accustomed to and developed valuations on top of super low discount rates. Now, though, the economy is super hot. Uh, inflation is very, very high. And it looks like you know, inflation may come down a little bit, but you're going to still have some supply chain challenges and that the labor markets are going to improve in 2022. So it looks like the economy is going to stay hot for a lot of 2022. And as a result, the Fed is now projecting that they're going to hike rates in mm -hmm. 2022. Uh, these rate hikes, of course, increase the discount rates, which investors use to discount back future cash flows. And that is having a negative impact on the net present value of those future cash flows. That's why the stock market's having a bit of turbulence here in 2022, because the Fed's saying, hey, we're going to hike rates three times. Goldman Sachs is thinking there's going to be four rate hikes. The market's actually penciling in four rate hikes. That's what it's, it's uh, forecasting for. So you're looking like you're going to really increase the discount rate here in 2022. Mm -hmm. That present value is going to come down. Stock valuations need to compress to adjust to that. Um, and the impact is disproportionately large for tech stocks because Tech stocks aren't valued on what they're doing today. They're valued on those future cash flows. That's where all their valuation lies. Whereas like oil and gas or financials, mm -hmm. they're not really future cash flow machines. They're present cash flow machines. They're present balance sheet machines. 
And so they're not as negatively impacted as the tech stocks that are valued entirely off 2025, 2026, 2027 cash flows. So those so is, is it is it because people are worried about the here and the now, like that this is you know this is happening a little sooner than people anticipated. People are well, yeah. I mean, so the 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 real disconnect in the market is that throughout 2021, inflation was red hot, but the Fed kept saying it's transitory, it's transitory, it's transitory. We're going to sit on the sidelines. We're going to wait. We expect inflation to calm down. The labor market's not there yet. We're not going to hike. We're not going to tighten monetary policy. But then in late November on Capitol Hill, the uh, Fed chair, Jerome Powell, went up and said, hey, uh, that word transitory I've been using for the past nine months, yeah, um, it's hocus pocus. I'm going to retire it. We should stop using it. Uh, if this inflation is not transitory, um, it's very much stickier than we initially anticipated. The labor markets are also improving uh, very quickly. And so I think it's time for us to start being more aggressive with our monetary policy and be more hawkish with the monetary policy. So he said that in November. Fast forward two weeks to mid-December. The Fed has their, their meeting. They do a meeting you know, several times a year. They have their meeting. All the Fed members get together. They release their dot plot, which is their projections for how many times they're going to hike rates over the next 12, 24, 36 months. And all of a sudden that dot plot shifted. So we went from basically maybe one rate hike in 2022 to now the Fed's calling for three rate hikes in 2022. And now because inflation is still super hot, several weeks later, people are like, maybe they're going to do a fourth rate hike. So yes, all of a sudden over the past six weeks, we've gone from maybe one rate hike in 2022 to maybe four rate hikes in 2022. And that's why the market's getting all jittery and antsy because it was not priced for four rate hikes and now it needs to reprice itself for four rate hikes. But again, uh, you know, big tech stocks, you know, your Apples, your Microsofts, your your Metas, they're still doing pretty good. They're still Yeah, they are. They're doing fantastic highs. So yep. when people I think it's I think it's important for for people to be able to distinguish that when you say that when you say, you know, that tech stocks are down, but people are seeing those bigger companies still being at all-time highs. It's those smaller companies, those innovative companies that you're looking out for, correct? Well, actually, yeah, people look at the market, they're like, S&P 500 is near all-time highs. Um, you know, market's doing just fine. Well, that's actually kind of bogus because mm -hmm. S&P 500 is market cap weighted. Okay. Uh, and so what you're seeing is these large cap tech stocks, the ones you're talking about, the things, mm -hmm. um, they're performing great. And so they're holding up the broader averages, but underneath the market, it is a it is ugly. Underneath those large that large cap strength is a bunch of mid cap and small cap weakness. If you're not a large cap tech stock or in oil and gas or in financials or in utilities, you're getting crushed. That's how the market is right now. So you can't look at the broader averages and say the market's holding up because that's just large cap tech holding up. So then why is large cap tech holding up? It's a fabulous question. The reason is that it's the new cash, right? Because if you look at the market mm -hmm. and you say, okay, the whole market's expensive because it's not repriced for, for rate hikes. So the whole market needs a valuation reset. Oil and gas has been on a fabulous run in 2021. Uh, same with financials, same with utilities. Uh, basically all the stocks that didn't work from 2000, 2020, 2010, 2020, 2020 are worked in 2021. There's skepticism they can continue to run higher in 2022. Disruptive tech, early stage tech, that's all long tail, long duration stuff. Investors are shunning that. But then you, you go to bonds and it's like, 
the bond, 10-year yields getting me 1.7%, 1.8%. Inflation's running at 5%, 6%, 7%. So I can go into a bond and actually lose money on a real basis. Mm. That doesn't make any sense. Now let's go to the crypto space. Well, that's also long tail stuff. Those are long duration assets. Those are high volatility, high beta assets. They're struggling. Mm-hmm. And if I sit in cash, inflation's super hot, so my cash is going to lose its value. If I'm an investor, then where am I going to put my money? And that was my last question. Like, what, what, so what's the play right now? When- well, the, the, the play is and has been large cap tech. That's okay. why large cap tech is holding up. It's the new cash. You're going into Apple. You're going into Facebook meta. You're going into NVIDIA because those companies are so big, so powerful, so unstoppable that you know they're not. There's zero chance of extinction. There's <laughs> very minimal chance that they're going to stop growing anytime soon. And, you know, they're not cheap, but they're not super, super, super valued either. So they're very middle of the road valuations. And that's why people are putting money. Some of them pay dividends as well. And Mm -hmm. that's why people are putting their money to work in large cap tech. It's the new cash. They're going to get seven, eight, 10% a year, beating inflation, getting positive real return, maybe throwing a dividend in there. So that's why large cap tech is holding up while the rest of the market is, is struggling underneath. So are people, are, it, it, the drop that we're seeing in those smaller tech stocks, is that because people are selling those off because of that and then investing again into the, into the bigger ones? Yeah, well, I, I think there's, there's a lot of investors out there who are saying, okay, big idea. Technology is taking over the world. I, that's Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's no Regardless of what's happening right now, that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. No one's going to argue against the fact that technology is taking over the world. Now, there's two ways to play that. I could either go and buy the disruptive tech stock that has massive upside potential, but is still a high risk asset with a lot of execution risk between where it is today and where it could be in five to 10 years. Or I could go and buy large cap tech, Mm -hmm. which is disrupting the world today. Yes, it's not a 5x, 6x, 7x potential winner, but But it's it's a a long-term compounder. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to buy that with low risk, low beta, maybe get some yield there, definitely get profits there and play it safe. In 2020, we saw a wall of liquidity hit the markets because of the pandemic. The Fed just Mm -hmm. basically threw a a kitchen sink at at the economy. When there is a wall of liquidity that large, risk appetites are large. And so people are like, large cap tech, not high enough for Roy. I'm going to go, I'm going to be risky. I'm going to go for those high beta, high upside stocks. And that's why you saw disruptive tech soar in 2020. Mm-hmm. But at the prospect of the Fed tightening policy, at the prospect of this wall of liquidity coming down and easing in 2021, those stocks started to be weak. People started to pivot into large cap tech and that pivot has accelerated in 2022 now that Fed rate hikes are becoming a very real possibility over the next few months. So do you see like another course correction happening where this starts to level back out again? Or, yeah, or do you see those companies not coming, not being able to bounce back from this? No, that's, that's exactly what we see happening. Is, okay. um, for us, this is a, a rerun of 2016. Okay. So if we rewind to 2016, um, in 20, late 2015, the Fed hiked rates, lift off, off of zero. Remember, after 2008, they cut rates to zero. Mm-hmm. They stayed at zero for a long time. December 2015, they finally hiked 25 basis points. They, they hiked rates. And then throughout 2016, they didn't do anything. But there was a fear that because they had hiked once, now we're getting into a rate hike cycle. Mm -hmm. And so on the fear that we were getting into a rate hike cycle, what investors did 
is they completely ditched the super rate sensitive, high growth, high beta disruptive tech stocks. Square dropped like more than 20% multiple times that year. Same with Shopify, same with Amazon, Netflix. Like those stocks got, they did not do well in, or they were very volatile in 2016. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, value stocks, energy stocks, utility stocks actually did very well in 2016 because it was that growth to value rotation. Okay. Here's the thing. Once the Fed, the Fed then hiked rates in December 2016 and it entered an actual rate hike cycle. So throughout 2017 and 2018, it hiked rates eight times. So it was a real rate rate hike cycle. The first rate hike cycle we'd seen since the the, uh, 08 financial crisis. Guess which stocks soared? during that rate hike cycle? I have no idea. <laughs> Counterintuitively, the disruptive rate-sensitive growth stocks really soared throughout 2017 and 2018. Okay. And the reason yep. being is because you, it was a rip the Band-Aid off moment. Those stocks had already recalibrated. They'd already been okay. reached for higher rates throughout 2016. So then mm-hmm. when actual rate hikes happened, they soared. Now, the stocks that struggled were the ones that everybody was piling into to play defense against those rate hikes, not understanding that rate hikes actually negatively impact every single stock, right? Everybody yeah. has super cash flows. Everybody yeah. uses discount rates. If that discount rate goes up, everybody's negatively impacted. So the stocks that got repriced for it ahead of the rate hikes actually worked once, once the rate hikes happened, while the stocks that didn't get repriced for it because everyone was playing defense with those stocks struggled once the rate hikes happened. We think- so, you guys, so you definitely see it, a repeat of this kind of happening in the back half of uh, 2022. Yeah, no, we see that same cycle playing out in 2022. We think there's going to be a lot of volatility uh, in all stocks mm-hmm. over the next three months. But we think if the Fed starts to hike in March, um, okay. which a lot of people think they will, mm-hmm. that'll be a similar rip the Band-Aid off moment as December 2016, which was the inflection point for disruptive growth stocks, technology stocks, long duration assets to go from being hammered over this past 12 months to really sustaining a strong recovery because they've been repriced for those rates. The fear is gone. It's actually happening. All right. Now it's time to focus on earnings growth. And guess what? Those companies have a lot of earnings growth. So that's, we think the same thing's going to happen. Same dynamic. Gotcha. Well, that, this, this, that, this leads into, I guess, the next question I have. And the next topic is, okay, so now we know how stocks are, how you're predicting stocks are going to look in 2022. But similar to stocks right now, cryptos, you mentioned earlier also, they're also off to a rough start here in 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a similar course correction? And again, cryptos are new, are so new that when something like this happens, we don't have, you don't have that same data before that you have to equate to, again, 2015, 2016 through to 2018. It, it's a new sector. So with this rough start in 2022, what's the outlook looking like for, for cryptos? Well, it's, it's the risk appetite thing. I think, again, um, when you remove liquidity from markets, risk appetites go down. Uh, cryptos are high beta, high risk assets, and therefore appetite for those assets, for cryptos, goes down when liquidity is removed. But we think the same thing's happening. These things have already been repriced, recalibrating. Bitcoin's okay. 40, 42.4 right now. Mm-hmm. 
we peaked above 65. Like we've already taken a big step down. Cryptos have already taken a big haircut. Is it over? No, we don't think so. There's still a lot of froth and speculation in this market. Mm-hmm. And so what we think actually happens in the crypto market in 2022 is you get what we call, um, and we're calling it the altcoin washout. Okay. Because when you look at the crypto market, it's very frothy, very speculative still. You have these dog coins popping up every week. That's a different dog. I mean, the market's flooded. It's flooded with these. Flooded you know, with, and, these and the things that it's being flooded with are not high quality assets. If it was being flooded with these projects that actually have potential to change the world, developed by people that are very, very smart people that have massive amounts of funding behind them, that's one thing. But when it's getting flooded by the dog of the week, then that's another thing. And that's what we've been seeing happening. It's getting flooded by the dog of the week. And so we think that there's going to be a washout mm-hmm. and all altcoins are going to take a big hit. Subsequent to that washout, the speculative, frothy, really not good stuff, the mm-hmm. flash coins you like to call them, they're going to forever never come back. So it's, it's, not, it's not only going to be a course correction like we were talking about with stock, but it's also going to weed out some of the, like, again, these shit coins for you know exactly. it's, yeah. it's it's gonna weed out those coins and it's gonna set the stage for an enormous rebound in the high quality cryptos out there so we actually are super i mean super excited for this year in cryptos because okay. we think we're going to get an really compelling once in a few years opportunity to buy tremendously valuable altcoins mm-hmm. at tremendously discounted prices because when sell-offs happen, regardless of the crypto markets or the financial markets, people tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. We have an opportunity to buy the baby in 2022, right? So this is the time to invest in those, you know, the, the good altcoins. Again, the good altcoins. It is, it's and not time yet, but yeah. it's time to start dipping your toes in and, and taking a look at some of the better projects that are out there. Gotcha. Build your shopping list so that when capitulation really hits, when we when those markets get real bloody, which is very possible, you have your shopping list ready and you're ready to get in there at really low prices, stomach a little bit of near-term volatility for the potential of enormous long-term gains. Because that is the opportunity that will present itself to crypto investors over the next three to six months, probably. And so for people who are already invested, who saw that hit, hold on to what you have because it's going to bounce back. I mean, it depends what you own, right? It depends but, what you yeah. own. If you, if you own things that are very valuable, mm-hmm. if you own things like Ethereum, if you own things like Solana, mm-hmm. if you own things like, I mean, there's a lot of coins out there that are very, very Cardano, very strong coins. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are autos. Hold on for dear life because those okay. things well produce enormous long-term value creation. Now, if you're in the dog of the week, mm-hmm. different question. Different question. Uh, And so I think that what you have to do is you have to look at your crypto holdings and understand, okay, is this really a long-term winner? Or did I just get in this to make a quick buck? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is, I just got in this to make a quick buck, then now's the time to get out. But if you're in it to generate substantial wealth with a coin that has substantial value Mm -hmm. over the next five to 10 years, then yeah, this this is hodl time. And then it's by the dip time soon. So it all depends on what you're holding, why you're holding and what your goals are. I mean, and again, I think those are good questions to ask yourself if you're investing in anything. But I mean, right. definitely with the the background of taking a look at these coins and really taking that top down perspective and looking at what are what is the purpose of these coins? Because I know that yeah. that's your big that's your biggest thing when you look at these coins is where what are they applicable to? How are they going to change? 
this again gr ever growing technology landscape that you're always talking about because if no. they aren't you get you it's not worth you're gonna lose money well, yeah i mean i mean let, let's i mean that's just a little wrinkle to that is that a lot of people made a lot of money in meme coins mm -hmm. all those joke coins whatever it may be so i do not want to take anything away from those people i think that's absolutely fabulous that people mm -hmm. make money that was an environment where risk appetites were high, where there was a yep. lot of liquidity, where people were willing to take risks for big rewards. That era could be coming to a close. And that's okay. what we're saying is that, okay. yes, there was a window here to make mm -hmm. a lot of money trading really small, really speculative coins. That era, however fun it was, probably in the eighth, or ninth inning of that ball game. Um, gotcha. But we're only in the second or third inning of the real blockchain revolution. Okay. So again, I think it's probably time to pivot from trading these cryptos for 100% gain in, in two weeks to investing in cryptos for long-term compounded growth. Um, I think that that's a pivot that people should make this year before the Fed forces the market to make that pivot. Taking another look at, again, all the technology stuff that's going on right now, one of the biggest announcements towards the end of 2021 was Facebook renaming to Meta. I know that you've been, a hu you've been hugely invested in looking at the Metaverse as a whole, and I know right. there's been some big news recently. One of the biggest ones that came out, I think, you know, in the past weeks was the partnership between Unity and Hyundai. Um, I took a look, I got to take a look at that, and I definitely have some questions for you as far as what's the point of it? What's the point of rebuilding this factory that they're that uh, they're doing? Because to me, it just seems like okay, it's the idea of a car factory is to build a physical car. What's the point of this Unity Hyundai partnership, and why is it and why is it important to the metaverse conversation? Um, yeah, so the purpose of factory is to build a physical car, but the building, the actual construction of the physical car, is only part of the process, right? There's design work that goes into it. Okay. Um, and that, I mean, that's a major component of building a car. So what the metaverse can do is it can accelerate and enhance the design process for making a car. You can interact with a virtual car and design it in drag and drop pieces um, in a way that previously you would have to, or would only be possible if you actually physically made those pieces and physically moved them to see how they looked in you know, 3D. Okay. Um, so we're, allowed, we're able to 3D render something that's physical and put it in the virtual world. Now, of course, the upside there is that we remove the cost, right? In order to build that thing, there's cost involved. In order mm -hmm. to remove those parts, there's cost involved, um, labor involved. Uh, there is no cost or labor to just, just, I mean, there is labor. There's no cost to just design it in a virtual world, in a virtual factory. So what the, what the virtual factory does uh, for a car maker, for example, is it allows car makers to design the car uh, without needing physical parts, without needing physical costs. It allows them to design the manufacturing line and tweak the manufacturing line uh, in a virtual replica before actually doing so in the real world. So once you do it in the real world, right, you may have to revert those changes. There are things that could happen that could go wrong that are going to be costly and timely. Doing it in the virtual world is much uh, less costly and less timely. Um, so it allows companies to do all the prep work in a virtual world so that when it comes to actually making the car in the real factory, it's just boom, 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 done. As opposed to trial and error. You remove the trial and error from the physical world, you put it in the virtual world, you remove the cost of that trial and error, you speed up the time of that trial and error process, 
And then you basically totally optimize the car manufacturing process from end to end. So that is the benefit of creating a virtual factory alongside a, a real factory. And that's what Unity and Andi are doing. That I think is a really forward thinking thing. It's what will become the standard within, you know, tough to say timeline there, but in the 2020s, that will likely become a standard. Virtual factories will likely become a standard. So what, what should investors take away be from this? Because again, cool idea. I, I, I totally get what you're saying. Like, you know, cost efficient for those companies. But from an investor standpoint, what does this what does this indicate for for somebody? Does it just mean invest in Unity and Hyundai, or is there a bigger picture to look at? Uh, the big picture here is that Metaverse is not gaming, or it's not limited to gaming, right? Everyone mm-hmm. thinks Metaverse, and they go to Ready Player One, okay, uh, like science fiction movie, right? And they're like, put on a headset and go live in this virtual world and just game against people and be super cool, which is a big part of the Metaverse, but it's literally only one sliver of what the metaverse can do for the world. This has nothing to do with gaming. Virtual factories has literally nothing to do with gaming. Yet it is one way the metaverse will add tremendous economic value to corporations. Uh, metaverse workflows, metaverse offices, that's a very big thing. There's a guy on my team right now, he got an Oculus Rift for, uh, for Christmas and now he's working in the metaverse. He has like his virtual office set up, he does virtual workflows. Like he is going all in with that and he absolutely loves it. So there are so many applications of the metaverse beyond gaming mm-hmm. that investors need to start paying attention to. Right now, they're all about gaming. They're about Roblox. They're about um, Take-Two. They're about Activision, right? They're about the gaming world. Mm-hmm. But metaverse is gaming plus manufacturing, plus yeah. work, plus productivity, plus just virtual identities, uh, metaverse dating will probably be a big thing, right? Metaverse um, kind of just hangouts, metaverse shopping, metaverse advertising. There's so many realms of the metaverse that the big takeaway here is don't focus on gaming. Mm-hmm. Zoom out, see the forest through the trees and understand the metaverse is about reshaping pretty much all of the world's processes. Do you see and just do you see the the pandemic accelerating this because people are working from home or is this just again the natural evolution that that we're seeing right now? Yeah, it's just a natural evolution. I mean, the pandemic accelerated things that were already in place. Okay, humans are natural escapists. We like to escape. Why the hell else are we on our phones all the time? Why else are we on, you know, uh, in playing video games all the time? Why are we watching Netflix all the time? Why are we listening to music all the time? We're always trying to escape through content. And mm-hmm. if we can, if that uh, content escape is three-dimensional as opposed to two-dimensional, mm-hmm. then of course we're going to go to the three-dimensional escape. So if we can make our work days just a little more interesting by doing it yeah, in the metaverse, it might just make work a little yeah, bit more bearable. It's, it's just more fun. Okay. Uh, life is more fun when you get to do things that, uh, Otherwise, you're not able to do, and the metaverse will enable that. One thing I'm personally really excited about is the metaverse aspect of like going on trips. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in the sense that it's going to replace the fact that I, I want to travel. I love to travel. I love seeing things. I'm going to always travel. But the fact of the matter is going to the Great Pyramids of Egypt is going to cost me a whole lot of money, and I got to save up for that for many years. So what am I going to do in the meantime? Well, why not just throw on a metaverse headset? And go yep. see a virtual replica of the Great Pyramids from my own house, from my own couch, right? Like, mm-hmm. 
that is something I'm really personally and really excited about. I think I think it's going to really democratize travel experiences for a lot of people. For example, you know what's actually happening right now is Paris Hilton, uh, you know the person who's famous for being famous, uh, she had a virtual party on Roblox on New Year's Eve. So mm-hmm. she hosted a virtual New Year's Eve party uh, where she was DJing it mm-hmm. uh, on in Roblox. It was a metaverse New Year's Eve party. Now the cool thing about that is. Not all of us can go to Times Square on New Year's mm-hmm. Eve. Not all of us get invited to big house parties on New Year's Eve. Not all of us have those opportunities. Mm-hmm. The metaverse democratizes those opportunities so that virtually we all can experience them. And I think that's a really cool aspect of the metaverse and something personally I'm very excited for. No, that's, it's definitely exciting. Uh, and, and again, I, you know, we talked about the metaverse offline before and it's, yeah. I, it is an exciting thing. And I, I do agree with a lot of what you're saying and seeing where it's going to come. Um, I, I think it was just hearing that, seeing that article with unity and Hyundai and like, okay, so you're making a factor, a virtual factory. What's, what's next. It, it was, it definitely caught me a little off guard. Um, I think partially because what you're saying is that you, we do associate gamification and gaming with the metaverse more than anything else. But it is, again, it's nice to know that there's, there's another step coming. Um, well, it's also important to note that Honda is not alone here, right? Boeing is also launching a virtual factory. Okay. They have plans to create virtual airplanes, design virtual airplanes, uh, all in the metaverse, so that when they actually come to making the airplane in the real world, because making an airplane is a very expensive undertaking, um, so it will really optimize the cost of manufacturing a plane. So Boeing's in this game as well, and I'm sure many other industrial giants will follow suit over the coming years. Well. Again, going off of Hyundai and, and again, manufacturing, you know, with, with new technologies, we're also, I know that another big uh, thing for you is, EV, is our EVs, electric vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of want to get your take on where you see the direction of EV stocks for 2020 to 2022. Again, we saw a lot of, um, there, there's this kind of conversation going on right now between old school car manufacturers and these new school car manufacturers. So you right. have, you know, the the cars that you know you and I grew up with. You have your Ford, your your uh, Honda, your Toyota, and now and EVs started pretty much with Tesla. That they were the ones that started it all, and that's in my mind a newer company. But you have you know Rivian, Lucid, and you have these new school. But there's it seems like there seems to be an equalization between electric vehicles across the board. Is that a fair? Yeah, I mean, old school is punching back. Okay. You know, Ford's electrifying, GM's electrifying, Toyota's electrifying, Volkswagen's electrifying. They're all electrifying because everyone knows EVs the future. Uh, these old school companies are punching back, finally. I mean, it took a lot to wake up the dinosaur, but the dinosaur woke up and it's ready to fight. Okay. Um, well, those companies have success. Uh, absolutely. Um, there is a diehard group of people out there that will only buy Ford trucks. Uh, there is an equally large diehard group of people that will only buy GM trucks. Um, and there, Volkswagen has its own brand loyalty. Toyota has its own brand loyalty. So um, those companies will have success in pivoting to EVs and electrifying their fleets. Um, at the same time, they have the uh, incumbent advantage of already having production set up, already having the manufacturing lines set up, right? So they're ready to start pumping out EVs very quickly. A lot of EVs at scale very quickly. They already have the infrastructure to to make the car. And presumably that will enable them to also have lower costs. So I think there are a lot of advantages working in favor of old school uh, auto companies. Now, the reason that I'm not super bullish on them from an investment perspective is that they're still going to lose market share. Mm -hmm. Right? Like 
even if they are successful in electrifying their fleets, guess who else is going to be successful? Lucid's going to be successful. Tesla's already being successful. Rivian will be successful. Canoe will be successful. Arrival will be successful. These companies will be successful. They simply have more talent than a lot of these incumbent companies. Because when you zoom out and look at the big picture here, if I'm a really forward thinking tech engineer, a mechanical engineer, uh, do I want to go work for Ford and try to electrify the F-150 at a company that's not growing very quickly, not that exciting, doesn't have a stock that's really has a lot of upside potential? Or do I want to go to a Tesla or a Lucid or a Rivian where there's a lot of potential and where all the top engineers have gone recently? I want to go to those companies. So those companies are going to attract, they have a much better talent pipeline. They are purpose-built to create EVs. They're not going to cannibalize their existing businesses. So those companies are going to be successful as well. If they're successful, that inherently means from a numbers perspective Mm -hmm. that Ford, GM, Toyota, Volkswagen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are going to lose market share. Yes, they're going to be successful pivoting to EVs, but their overall sales volume at scale will likely be lower than what it was in the 2010s. Mm That's why I don't see them as super compelling investment opportunities. Sure, I get it. Their valuations are cheap. Sure, I get it. They're much more cheaply valued than a Tesla. But at the end of the day, they're much more cheaply valued because their growth potential is much weaker. Even if they sell a thousand, ten thousand, a million EVs, they're likely not selling to new customers. They're selling to customers who would have bought their gas powered cars. Mm-hmm. So it's not new demand, it's just demand shifting from gas to EVs. Whereas if you look at Lucid or Tesla or Rivian, that's new demand. Those people are going from buying Toyota and GM and Ford to buying Tesla, Lucid, and Rivian. It's a new demand. That's why those stocks to me are much more exciting investment opportunities with much higher upside potential than your old school uh, auto stocks, despite the fact that those companies will have success in electrifying their fleets. Mm-hmm. Do you see the new school stocks rising to that same level of prominence as old school, or is it going to stay this kind of niche EV market? And then as the bigger uh, automakers catch up, they'll still maintain that name brand recognition. And then you have a very small portion of people still going to the the niche luxury EV market. Uh well, to be clear, EVs will be a ubiquity. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking 100% consumer uh, adoption probably by 2040. I mean, that's mm-hmm. where we're headed. So who's going to dominate that? It's not going to be Ford. It's not going to be GM. No, I mean, the reality is, is that EVs have become a status symbol. They okay. become a fashion statement. They become a, uh, to some extent, a political statement. Mm-hmm. They're now brands in a way that auto companies have not been brands for a while. Ford has not been cool since God knows when. Uh, GM has not been cool since God knows when. Toyota has not been cool since God knows when. Tesla is freaking cool. Lucid is cooler. Rivian, maybe the coolest, right? I think it's gonna take a long, long time for those brand equities to get diluted and saturated. And I believe that gives these companies a 10 to 15 year runway to leverage their brand equity and become the poster boys of the auto industry while Ford, Toyota, GM, Volkswagen, et cetera, uh, 
lose prominence. So, so do you do you see it more as a branding issue or a technology issue? Both. I mean, I do believe, again, that the talent pipeline is going to allow these companies to make better cars. I mean, Luce is pumping out a car that has 500 plus miles of range. I think Toyota and GM and Ford are stuck at, what, 200 to 300? So, I mean, it's definitely a, a technology thing. Uh, make no mistake about that. But it's I think the branding component is really underrated uh, uh, in this story. Brand is a huge thing when buying a car. If I'm plopping down 20, 30, 40, 50, 60... For Lucid, $150,000 in a car. Brand freaking matters. Mm-hmm. Now, brand matters a lot. And so on the assumption brand matters a lot, then the companies with strong branding power, strong brand equity in the space, well, win. That's why Tesla has been winning. Their brand equity is very strong. Mm-hmm. Lucid has stronger brand equity right I, now. Yeah, I mean, I was about to say, I mean, I've seen like the way that Lucid's been marketing their, their vehicles you know, just with their, their virtual showroom, the chance it's so, it's so luxurious. The, the, the experience. Yeah, they, they just up a, uh, a lucid showroom down here in, in La Jolla here in California. Mm-hmm. And, um, they, uh, we were walking by it the other night and my wife, uh, grabs my hand and she's like, you would look so good driving one of those. <laughs> and it's like, as, as funny as that sounds, <laughs> That's, that's really what it is. That's really yeah. part of the story for Lucid and Tesla. Mm-hmm. People buy those saying, I'm going to look good driving this. You know, yeah. I'm going to be the coolest guy on the block, coolest girl on the block. I'm going to be the, you know, that's a lot of the reason why people, no one buys a Toyota for that. No one no. buys, yeah. e- even the Ford F-150 all electric lightning, whatever. No one's buying that because they're going to look cool. Like, no, but you buy a Tesla to look cool. You buy Rivian. The Rivian trucks look. The Rivian truck. Yeah, you buy Rivian. Cool, and that's why I think that cool factor. I mean, it's discounted majorly, but I think it's a huge component of the growth narrative for new school EVs and why they can usurp old school EVs. Now, granted, once they usurp them, their coolness will wear off, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean they won't usurp them in the meantime. It just means that in ten to fifteen years, somebody newer can come under and sweep them up off uh, from from their incumbency, and so. But that's just the way capitalism works. And so I think that these companies do have a 10, 15 year runway to become the prominent giants in the auto industry, while the ones that are big today uh, consistently lose relevancy. Yeah, no, that's, I think, again, things I don't even, I've never even thought of when I think about, again, electric vehicles or any of the topics that, again, we've talked about today. Again, your, your attention to detail and research and insightfulness is, I think, going to benefit our audience immensely. I, you know, in the last half hour, I have learned more about these topics than I could have by from any, I think anyone else. Um, and I think this is the beginning of something really fun too. I mean, I, this is, this conversation went by so fast, you know, we got through our topics and, and I still feel like we could talk about this all day. Um, but, uh, it's going to be incredible to get to these answers. I think for, for people in week to week, uh, you know, cause I know I have a lot of questions and again, I'm sure that, uh, moving forward, our viewers are going to have questions and topics that they want to talk about, mm-hmm. uh, it, with us here at hyper growth investing. So, you know, for our viewers, uh, please leave a comment in the description. You know, we'd love to add a Q and a to this. I'm sure our viewers are going to have questions for you, Luke. Um, Luke, I know people can find you over and your insights and thoughts over at investorplace.com. Well, um, and again, Luke, I am really, really excited to start this journey with you. Yeah, I am too, Aaron. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I mean, uh, 
knowledge is power. A lot of people get confused and think money is power and that you just got to pick the right stocks and it's, it's all going to work out. But at the end of the day, you want to pick the right stocks and know why you picked them so that you can pick them again in the future. Exactly. Um, and I think that this is going to be, yeah, yeah. I think it's going to be educational for a lot of people to, to at least start to think about those questions to ask. Yep. You got you to know what's going on. And also just from a real world perspective, I mean, the world is changing super rapidly. I mean, disruptive yeah. technology is, is changing the way we do things. And uh, if you understand how those technologies work, you're not just going to pick the best stocks to make money in the market, but you're also going to understand uh, how the world around you is changing and be able to adapt to it and succeed in it in ways that other people are, are not. And so it's very important that you know what's going on as opposed to just being a sheep and blindly buying whatever uh, the next guy tells you to buy. So um, that, that's what I really want to foster in the show mm -hmm. is independent thinking and an ability get in part upon our viewers an ability to discern markets, technology markets and technology trends for themselves. Uh, as the old saying goes, don't teach somebody or don't give somebody a fish, teach them how to be a fisherman. And that's what I hope we can do in the show. Well, we will be back next week to see how things change in a week-to-week -week basis uh, with another episode of Hyper Growth Investing. But thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you.